The kakadu plum is an Australian native superfood containing 100 times more vitamin C than oranges. So why have you never heard of it? PR. No one's drinking a kakadu smoothie? I'm JB Smooth, and that was a full episode of my new podcast, Straightforward. Inspired by guaranteed straightforward pricing from AT&T Fiber. Get what you want without the complicated. AT&T Fiber, live like a giggillionaire. Available wherever you get your podcast. Limited availability in select areas. Visit at and slash hypergig for details. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste, or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products, because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Too Much Information is a production of iHeartRadio. everyone, and welcome to Too Much Information, the show that brings you the secret history and little-known facts behind your favorite music, movies, TV shows, and more. We are your two witches of the World Wide Web, your two conjurers of classic movie <laughs> anecdotes, your wand-waving weirdos of way too granular details. <laughs> My name is Jordan Runtug. And I'm Alex Eigel. And today we are talking about a Disney Halloween classic much beloved by our fellow millennials, Hocus Pocus. <laughs> he said with leaden enthusiasm. <sighs> yeah, you know, folks, <laughs> I'm going to drop my mask a bit. I'm going to level with you. You know, normally when we do these shows, at least one, if not both of us, we have a fondness for the topic. Though I have to say, I do love it when you hate something, Heigl. I Maybe I'm a masochist. I think it's funny <laughs> when you hate something I adore. But this time around, ah, we can't fake this. I don't want to lie to you. Neither of us particularly care for this movie. To my knowledge, neither of us have ever seen it. I've seen it once. Oh, you my, did in, see it? In 1990, must have been 96, 97. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, yeah, I've never seen it. Once. You've seen it once um, <laughs> 25 years ago. Um, I've, I've tried to get into it. I, you know what? Actually, yesterday, I took a field trip to the town of Salem, Massachusetts to really try to get into the spirit. And... Um, just wasn't happening for me. I wasn't a spooky, scary kid. I I tell you what, I really didn't like Halloween. Ever tell you my Halloween story? No. Oh, yeah, I, my first Halloween. I was just like, all right, let me get this straight. I'm five years old. My whole life so far, you've told me not to take candy from strangers, and now you're telling me to do exactly <laughs> that. So they're giving me pep talks. They're like, all right, you know, it's okay. You can go up to the stranger's house. You can, you know, I'm not, I was an introvert anyway. So to actually yeah. go up to a stranger and ask for something is just completely, you know, anathema to anything that I'm about. No, it's okay. It's okay. You just say trick or treat and then they give you candy and you walk away. It's going to be great. I liked candy. So this, you know, all right, at least there was a payoff <laughs> here. I was a bowling pin for my first Halloween because um, I love bowling. So I went up to the first house and I rang the door. And the woman came to the door. I said, trick or treat. And she said, trick, what are you going to do now? 
and I burst into tears and I turned around and I left. <laughs> and that was my first Halloween. And I've, I've really, I've hated it ever since. And I, oh man, I've, I've also, I've looked like I do now as a 30, almost 35 year old man since I was about 11 or 12. So mm-hmm. when I would be 11 or 12, you'd get parents at the door handing out candy saying like, aren't you a little old for this? And I'd be in like fifth grade. So yeah, all in all, I've just always felt way too shy and self-conscious to ever really enjoy Halloween. Way too easily scared to enjoy all the spooky stuff. Yeah, so Hocus Pocus never really did it for me. What do you think? I love Halloween. It's the best. Halloween's the best. It's the best season. It's got Mm. all the best stuff. Candy and janky janky, uh, decorations. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I love it. Uh, I, my parents had great costumes for us. And What's was, your favorite? I had a pretty good Dracula one. Ooh, um, that makes sense, yeah. Yeah, a pretty good Dracula one. I had a pretty good werewolf one. Yeah, and I just, I, I just really love horror movies, too. But this is not a good movie. <laughs> let's, <laughs> let's just say the quiet part out loud. It is like, I get, the thing is, I was like... 10 to 12 and I was just You're not too old. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and so I have no like grandfather day and affection for it. And it's just, it's not that good. And, <laughs> and I'm sorry. I mean, people are going to be like, Oh, how could you say that? Like, because you watched it when you were a child. And like, I like, there's a lot of things that this is, this whole thing is like, you can like things when you're a child. And, but that doesn't, you know, uh, let me say this. Roger Ebert agrees with us. And Entertainment Weekly and Gene Siskel and yeah, no, it was not so well like, reviewed when it was released. It was not a success when it was released. It's no. like the it's like the it's the Hannibal Burris thing. It's like, why are you booing me? I'm right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so but you know what? I I Let say that without things. I say that without malice though. Yes. It's not yes. a good movie, but I love that people are excited about it. I oh, yeah. I I am and it's got some great stories behind it. So yes. let's just Let's just dive in. Yes, absolutely. Through no fault of its own, this movie never really resonated with either of us. But, you know, it's important to you, dear listeners. So we did our very best to give you what I think is a truly spectacular show. And especially now we've got the release of the sequel, Hocus Pocus 2, earlier this year. It's as good a time as any. I can't wait. Let's dive in. From all the weird ties this movie has to the film Titanic and the film American Beauty and the show Friends to the surprising reason it broke Steven Spielberg's heart, the reason Kathy and Jimmy was initially afraid to appear in it, to Sarah Jessica Parker's ancestral ties to the Salem witch trials, there's an army of black cats, piles of rotting pumpkins, mouthfuls of moths, and also the true reason why everyone in New England says that things are wicked. Here is everything you didn't know about Disney's Hocus Pocus. The plot of Hocus Pocus was born when a black cat crossed the path of producer David Kirshner in the early 80s. Usually that's supposed to be bad luck when a black cat crosses your path, but in this case, I'd say it worked out pretty well for David Kirshner. At the time, he was known mostly for coming up with a story for an American tale, but he says that the plot for Hocus Pocus came to him one day when a black cat wandered into his family yard. And to amuse slash terrify his young daughter, he made up a bedtime story about this cat being a boy who was cursed by three witches some 300 years ago to inhabit the body of a cat. 
And this all isn't quite as strange as it may sound. He later told the rap that Halloween was a huge deal in the Kirshner family home. He said, our family's a bit like the Adams family. So, you know, telling two little girls a bedtime story about witches sucking the life out of children is probably not the best decision as far as parental gentleness is concerned. But from the time they were little, they loved this kind of world of things that go bump in the night. And the story would ultimately become the tragic tale of Thackeray Binks, a young man who was turned into a cat by the three witchy Sanderson sisters. And the name Thackeray Binks actually has a personal connection to David Kirshner. The name was inspired in part by a stray black cat he'd taken in as a kid who they called Inks for his inky black fur, hence Binks. (laughs) And Kirshner liked this story well enough to write it up and submit it to Muppet Magazine, which I had no idea was a thing, where it got some attention. And that's when he decided to start developing it into a full length script. Yeah, David Kirshner has just one of the wildest CVs. I mean, he goes from American Tale, which he also wrote, to the Child's Play franchise. He is, along with writer-director Don Mancini, the big creative engine behind that franchise, he created the animatronic doll for Chucky and has produced all seven films in the original franchise. Whoa. Yeah, good on him. Also, Muppet Magazine. Did you read anything about Muppet Magazine? No, I know nothing about it. It's kind of incredible. Uh, It featured real-life celebrity guests alongside the Muppets, and the Muppets got, like, recurring columns, like... uh, Floyd from the band would review uh, records and Statler and Waldorf would review movies. Oh, well, that's there's Cisco and Ebert. I mean, exactly. that one's a gimme. Yeah. Uh, Miss Piggy has an advice column. That's awesome. Um, and you can see all these covers out there from this magazine that were um, like Brooke Shields, Olivia Newton-John, Christopher Reeve, Steve Martin, Danny DeVito, Don Johnson. <laughs> I mean, this whole thing was run by a guy named Don Welsh who had uh, came to it after stints at Fortune and Rolling Stone. So, yeah, dude, Muppet Magazine, real real heavy hitter in the publishing world. <laughs> wow. So, okay, this makes a lot more sense that success in Muppet Magazine put him on the path towards <laughs> trying to pitch this to Disney. Okay. So, the plot of the movie that you all... I'm not going to say we know and love, you know and love, uh, (laughs) mostly focuses on the kids. But the original version of Hocus Pocus was a lot darker. Kirchner developed the story with a guy named Mick Garris, who had a career writing horror movies, and he produced and directed several documentaries about horror films and worked as a story editor and writer on the Amazing Stories TV series that was produced by Steven Spielberg, who we'll talk more about in a moment. Now, Kirchner had worked with Spielberg somewhat extensively, most notably and most recently on the American Tale movie. So that was the connection between the producer David Kirchner and writer Mick Garris. Garris, yeah, Garris has written Critters 2, the main course. He also wrote Batteries Not Included. Um, and, uh, the sequel to the fly. Yeah. He's a legit dude. So he's collaborating with Dave Kirshner on Hocus Pocus. And in this early version, the kids were actually a little younger and everything was a little bit more evil. As Gareth said, the kids being younger and in more jeopardy was certainly more explicitly frightening. Later versions of the script made two of the children older to attract a different demographic to sell more tickets and make the film more broadly comic. My version centered on the fears of a younger, less mature kid and how they would face death in a graveyard, which, damn. (laughs) Kathy and Jimmy also says that the movie they shot was pretty drastically different from the movie that was completed. During a 25th anniversary screening in 2018, she told Sci-Fi Wire, it was cut and edited completely different than it was filmed. It was really more about the witches and less about the kids. 
Apparently, Disney, being Disney, wanted to make the film more kid-friendly. So they removed, by Najimi's estimation, five huge scenes with the Sanderson sisters, the witches, including one scene that was set in the supermarket that actually wound up in the movie trailer. And there were also scenes that were cut where kids tried to push the witches into a pool, and also a scene where the witches were handing out candy to trick-or-treaters. That sounds funny. The original title of this movie was slated to be Disney's Halloween House, which blows. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Uh, Hocus Pocus, clearly superior. The phrase has been in use since at least 1620 as an incantation used by magicians alongside Abracadabra. And the idea behind these exotic phrases was part showmanship and drama, but also kind of the audio equivalent of sleight of hand. The magicians would hope that these phrases would serve as brief distractions for the audience so that they could, you know, do whatever they needed to do to pull off the trick. And the phrase hocus pocus is thought to be a perversion of the Latin sacramental blessing hocus corpus minum, which is, I'm sure I'm pronouncing wrong, this is my body from Latin mass. You ever been to a Latin mass? You that much of a Catholic? Oh yeah, I'm Catholic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my my relatives were priests. I didn't know that. Oh. Um yeah, so Kirchner goes to pitch his movie at Disney way back in nineteen eighty four. And to really sell the idea, he made what was essentially an elementary school Halloween party for these executives. <laughs> I love this. Which is yeah, it's very cute. He says he got to the meeting a half hour early and arranged uh somewhere between two and fifteen pounds of candy corn. Accounts vary (laughs) on the conference room table in the shape of a snake to create the smell of Halloween. Pitching is about, you know, all five, Mm. engaging all five of the senses. Mm -hmm. He also hung props all around the room, like childlike drawings of black cats, brooms suspended from the ceiling, and even a vacuum cleaner, uh, which is a nod to the way that the Sanderson sisters get around in these modern times. Then he darkened the lights in the room and ushered the executives in. (laughs) One of whom being Jeffrey Katzenberg being led (laughs) into a child's Halloween party in his conference Uh, room. (laughs) They all loved the idea, but apparently the initial plan was for this to be a made-for-TV movie for the newly created Disney Channel, which had launched a year earlier in 83 and was just desperately in need of new material. That is the rumor. It's unclear what point in the process that it was upgraded from made-for-TV to theatrical feature. Um, there are versions that say that the execs were just super excited about the script. There's other versions that claim when Bette Midler signed up, they decided to go big with it. There's also a theory that the finished movie was just too frightening for Disney Channel consideration, especially some of the makeup stuff, which we'll get to later. And given the fact that it was eight years between the pitch meeting of 84 and the start of production in 1992, clearly there was some conversations that took place. <laughs> I like to imagine... Um, they did the old blindfold them and gave him a, 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 a <laughs> the cold spaghetti and they were <laughs> yeah. like, or the grapes, the peeled grapes. And they were like, and this is Steven Spielberg's eyes. <laughs> cold spaghetti being like, and this is, is <laughs> David Geffen's brains. <laughs> Rory Disney's <Yeah>. brains. <laughs> Ooh, uh, it's a long-standing tradition here on TMI to drag Jeffrey Katzenberg whenever he appears on the show, which enemy we've picked pod, a powerful enemy. Yeah, yeah, we've picked we've picked possibly the most the worst enemy. He is a vengeful man and thin-skinned. Um, this story recently came out in Andy Ortiz's amazing oral history of Hocus Pocus a few weeks back in the rap. So it's important to remember that David Kirshner had made his name with An American Tale, which he had initially pitched to Katzenberg at Disney before Spielberg picked it up. 
According to a recent interview Kirshner gave to The Wrap, Katzenberg turned it down quite rudely. Uh, this is uh, Kirshner saying, I presented an American tale to him and Jeffrey said, I won't use his language, but who the F is going to go see a film about a Jewish mouse? And I said, well, who's going to see a film about a wooden puppet? Hmm. Mm. I mean, it's where you take these characters, the art, what the emotions, what the story is. And he said, nice try. Thank you anyway. And that was the end of it. God, he sucks. And I was fortunate that Spielberg felt very differently and bought it. Spielberg bought An American Tale for his new production company, Amblin Entertainment. And in 1986, An American Tale became the highest performing non-Disney animated movie ever at the time, all thanks to Steven Spielberg giving him the chance. Now, in this retelling in The Wrap, Kirshner said that he took Hocus Pocus to Disney first, even though they'd rejected An American Tale. And, according to Kirshner, this broke Spielberg's heart. He, he recalled seeing uh, Spielberg's production partner, Kathleen Kennedy, at a party, and she said, you know, you really hurt Steven. And as Kirshner tells the story, and I was like, what? And she said, the fact that after he gave you your first film, you didn't even bring Hocus Pocus to him. You went right to Disney. I honestly felt tears in the back of my eyes. This is a really painful memory for me that I upset Steven, who, as I say, I owe everything to. However, this is when it begins to get fuzzy. Mick Garris, screenwriter, has claimed that he and producer David Kirchner pitched Hocus Pocus to Spielberg first, but he ultimately passed because Spielberg was starting his own production company, Amblin, and didn't want to work with Disney. Garris said he loved it until he found out that Disney was already involved. At that time, Disney and Amblin were very competitive in the family film market, so neither of them wanted to be in business with the other. But it was very close to being a project with Steven Spielberg. Reps for Spielberg did not comment on the rap story, which is famously cold shoulder in the celebrity entertainment journalism world. So jury's still out on that one. If you or a loved one can prove <laughs> a verified timeline of the pitching process for Hocus Pocus, Jordan will Venmo you five bucks. So that's enough industry backstabbing for one episode. I tend to believe Kirshner because the story doesn't make him sound good, which <laughs> makes me believe him. Yeah. Uh, and, you know... You pissed off Spielberg, the guy who gave you your big break. Seems like the kind of mortifying thing that you probably remember kind of sticks with you. So <laughs> I tend to believe Kirshner in this whole version that uh, he just accidentally hurt him. So that's sad. But anyway, for a director, Disney tapped Kenny Ortega, who TMI fans will remember as the choreographer who worked with Gene Kelly on the roller disco bomb Xanadu. And he would go on to direct Disney Juggernaut's High School Musical 1 through 3. Cheetah Girls 2, and he also choreographed tours for Cher, Kiss, Gloria Estefan, and to me most famously, Michael Jackson for the ill-fated This Is It tour that never happened in 2009 because he died. Uh, but back when Hocus Pocus was getting off the ground, Ortega had just directed the Disney movie musical Newsies starring Christian Bale. But that movie tanked after its release in the spring of 1992, pulling in just $2.8 million on a reported $15 million budget, thus making it one of Disney's lowest grossing live action movies ever. I didn't realize it was that big of a flop. So Hocus Pocus was seen as a chance to prove himself. And unfortunately, as we'll find out, the box office score for Hocus Pocus was pretty much as dismal as Newsies. Yeah... So we mentioned earlier that one of the armchair theories behind why Hocus Pocus went from being a made-for-TV movie to a theatrical release was because Bette Midler signed on 
So, now we must talk about Bette Midler. Initially, the part of Winifred Sanderson was written with Cloris Leachman in mind. Cloris <laughs> Leach, friend of the pod, Cloris Leachman. <laughs> famously of The Last Picture Show, The Married Tyler Moore Show, and an ex of Bobby Boris Pickett. Right. If decades old... <laughs> Monster Mash fan. <laughs> Hollywood scuttlebutt is to be believed. David Kirchner admitted at the 25th annual screening of Hocus Pocus in 2018, the first person that I really wanted for Winifred Sanderson was Cloris Leachman. And that was the first person because I was so in love with her from the Mel Brooks films, from Young Frankenstein especially, which makes total sense. It's unclear whether or not Cloris was actually offered the role, but ultimately they went with Bette Midler, who had already made a number of movies with Disney's Touchstone Pictures imprint, Down and Out, Beverly Hills, Ruthless People, and Outrageous Fortune, as well as voicing Georgette the Poodle in Oliver and Company, a movie I remember nothing about except for that banger of a Billy Joel song. That song rips. Street Savoir Fair. Why should I worry? Uh, Anyway... Her involvement was really pivotal for this. Uh, David Kirshner later said, had she not said yes, I'm not sure if Hocus Pocus would have ever been made. Midler was interested in the movie because of her young daughter, Sophie. She told Kirshner that she wanted to do something that her little girl could actually watch and appreciate after making mostly R-rated films throughout her career. She based her character on both the Wicked Witch of the West from Wizard of Oz, played by Margaret Hamilton, who we'll get to in a moment, and also Angelica Houston's character of the Grand High Witch from 1990s The Witches. Do you have? Did you have familiarity with The Witches? No, none at all. Oh, boy horrifying horrifying truly horrifying or just bad yes movie? no oh, it's wow. she is and just do me a favor google the grand high witch 1990 i want to get your facial reaction live on live on the screen oh my <laughs> yeah that's her that's angelica houston baby i mean she's she's decomposing that's a, yeah wow that makes the crypt keeper look vivacious <laughs> Jesus Christ. Okay, wow. I did not need to see that at this hour. Wow. Okay. Well, quick, let's get back to Bette Midler and her and her campy career. I love it. There's a cute nod to Bette Midler's career. Earlier in the film, Kathy and Jimmy's character, Mary, says to Winifred, Winifred, thou art divine. Bette Midler, famously known for her nickname, the Divine Miss M. Mm-hmm. And she did indeed sing in this movie, because if you're going to have Bette Midler in your movie, it's stupid not to have her sing. She does a version of I Put a Spell on You, uh, famously by Screamin' Jay Hotkins and Nina Simone. Pick your favorite. They're both amazing. Uh, And Credence. And Credence, okay. I Put a Spell on You, sung by a witch, low-hanging fruit, but I'll allow it. (laughs) Uh, And Thora Birch remembers Bette wowing the set during downtime on the shoot with her singing. She said, Bet and Thora, who was like 10 at this point, were suspended from the ceiling in flying harnesses to film one of the final scenes of the movie. And as Thora recalled to the rap for that amazing oral history we just spoke about, it was towards the end of how long we had to be up there and we were both pretty miserable. But then all of a sudden, Bet just starts singing and everybody stops, which probably wasn't a good idea because they clearly needed to keep working. But when Bet sings, everybody stops. Mm. And I was just like, oh my God, this is freaking awesome. She's like, like singing to comfort us. That was a completely memorable moment. And Thora, who was like 10 at the time, remembers that Bet quote, had two people running around behind her with dictionaries of old curse words. <laughs> and that's where she came up with legendary unscripted digs like Trollamog and Magatry Malfeasance, which is awesome. Unrelated side note, 
Do you know Thora Birch's mom, Carol Connors, was in uh, Deep Throat? <laughs> yeah. The only reason I checked that was because I saw that her mom was Carol Connors, and I misread it as Carol O'Connor, and I thought briefly that Thora Birch's dad was Archie Bunker and all in the family, Carol O'Connor, but I was wrong. Um, yeah, I guess both of Thora's parents were adult entertainment performers. Your dad, Jack Birch, was a, uh, a porn star. So wait, did they meet doing porn? I think so. That's incredible. Yeah. Good for them. <laughs> I bet that's not a story that gets told every Christmas. <laughs> I was Googling it. it. Someone suggested that they did meet on the set of Deep Throat, but I wasn't able to actually. Uh, yeah, that was what I thought I heard. Yeah. they Yeah. So, yeah, they were both in Deep Throat. That's... Uh... Wow, that's a hell. That's a meat cute. That's a that's a movie we should make. I mean, it's basically Love Actually. It's the it's the Martin Friedman character. Get some Nixon <laughs> stuff in there. I mean, sock it to me. <laughs> For the part of the youngest Sanderson sister, Sarah. Oh yeah, God, that is the one of the only things I remember about this movie is. Having a young preteen stirring for Sarah Jessica Parker as the hot goth witch. They nearly got Jennifer Lopez, cartoon wolf. Uh, my tongue falling out of my jaw. I have to hit myself on the top of the head to roll it back up. With I hit myself on the head with a mallet, etc. I was more of a Bette Midler boy. <laughs> well, and they're in... Therein lies the difference between us. Yeah, on Carson, serenading Carson on the second to last episode? Come on. Um, Heart melts. Jennifer Lopez auditioned for this, but it went to Sarah Jessica Parker, who is then hot off her appearance in Steve Martin's L.A. story. And this is wild. Makes sense because for all of Jennifer Lopez's many and obvious charms, she is not related to an actual woman accused of witchcraft in the 1600s, as Sarah Jessica Parker is. During an appearance of the genealogy show, Who Do You Think You Are? Isn't that the one where they surprised, like, uh, like didn't Affleck try and bury the fact that his family, like, owned slaves? Or is that Damon? I didn't hear that, but that's possible. One of the two of them did. Anyway, Sarah Jessica Parker learned that she is the 10th great-granddaughter of Esther Elwell, who stood accused during the Salem witch trials when a young girl said she saw Esther's specter strangling a neighbor. Elwell was arrested but never actually went to trial because the accusations were starting to get so out of hand that even the governor's wife was getting accusations hurled at her. And naturally, when the powerful get accused of crimes, the laws change quickly. So SJP's ancestor was released and reportedly lived into her 80s. Now, the so-called Salem witch trials occurred roughly between February 1692 and May 1693, during which time more than 200 men, women, and children were accused of witchcraft. Out of all of those, 19 of them were hanged. Uh, most of these were women, but there was one man named Giles Corey who was pressed to death under heavy stones. Isn't that in The Crucible when he's he's a guy who keeps calling for more weight? I think so, yeah. Great death scene. <laughs> we, we, we stand Giles Corey. <laughs> At least five more of those who'd been found guilty died in jail. Obviously the most famous uh, witch hunt, this side of Joseph McCarthy and the uh, Red Scare of the 50s. But sadly, not the only one. Between 1647 and 1669 in Connecticut, 30 people were accused of witchcraft and 11 were hanged. 
During the same time as the Salem Witch Trials, there were similar trials in New Hampshire and Virginia, and these would just keep popping up sporadically throughout the 1700s. Not much to do. Not, not, not much else happening. Might as well accuse a bunch of people of witchcraft. However, the last trial for witchcraft in the United States would occur, fatefully, in Salem in 1878. Hopefully, some of those spirits were somewhat appeased by the casting of Sarah Jessica Parker in Hocus Pocus. <laughs> I mean, it's... I've read somewhere. I should probably research this before I say this, but, like, a lot of the people that were accused of being witches, in addition to just being people that the accusers just didn't personally like... Because they own land. Own land. I heard that there were also just people with... You know, people with Tourette's, for example. Yeah, like things yeah, were that fairly was a big common. One. But no, it was a really easy way to seize land from women, which was already a tenuous position for them, as, right. be, as was the fashion at the time. But yeah, you could, if you got her successfully accused and hanged, then you could just take that land right, right quick. Yeah. I think I read some instances where, like, there would be people who would, uh, by all accounts, seem to go crazy. They'd start having visions and start howling and start, and it was... Uh, I don't remember what exactly it was, but it was some kind of like fairly easy to remedy vitamin deficiency hmm. that, you know, could have been solved in a matter of days. There's been different academic studies that have advanced the theory that um, the brief and intense illnesses suffered by townspeople that were chalked up to witchcraft were uh, ergotism, a disease commonly contracted by rye bread. <laughs> And isn't that where LSD was? You are correct, sir. From? After wow. the after Hoffman. the after the rye plant contracts ergot, the fungus grows and uh, replaces the shoots on the grains with sclerotia. Sclerotia. I'm getting oh, butchered. Oh yeah, you're right. Sclerotia. Yeah. And um, those growths contain lysergic acid, and basically, uh, this stuff caused severe convulsions, muscle spasms, delusions. The sensation of crawling under the skin, and that's basically what they think <laughs> witchcraft was. People tripping balls <laughs> on bad rye bread. <laughs> you know, as with so many things in this country, the explanation is so much stupider. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I'm amazed it only took us like maybe, you know, under 30 minutes just to, to link Hocus Pocus with acid. <laughs> <laughs> As you meditate on that, we'll be right back with more Too Much Information after these messages. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Monday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cash back on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. 
Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, for product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. But back to your beloved Sarah Jessica Parker. Mm. She later said that she felt her character was, quote, the most fundamentally evil of all the Sanderson sisters. She is so not bright, not calculating, but it's her innate nature to be evil. For her older sisters, it's a learned thing. Yet she's still somewhat seductive. She's just awful, but I love her. There was very little about our characters beyond the script itself, so it gave me my first chance to really create a character, like finding the voice and physical stuff. They wanted me to do a Marilyn Monroe voice, but I found that boring. So I came up with something like a small five-year-old boy on helium. <laughs> and there's a funny little detail about Sarah Sanderson's hair that ties back to classic cinema. There are actually several nods to The Wizard of Oz in Hocus Pocus, and one of them is the length of Sarah Sanderson's hair. During the production of The Wizard of Oz, I guess I'd never noticed this. There were continuity issues with Dorothy's hair. In some scenes, her pigtails rest just below her shoulders, and in others, they're quite a bit longer. Apparently, as a little nod to this detail, Sarah Sanderson's hair constantly switches from curly to straight, and I also believe it varies in length at different times throughout the movie, too. And this is just one of several allusions to The Wizard of Oz, including the use of the Wicked Witch's theme, you know, the dun 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 And this sets me up perfectly for a crazy fact that I learned the other day about the Wicked Witch of the West from The Wizard of Oz, or rather the actress who played her, Margaret Hamilton. I'm from Boston, and yesterday... <laughs> so f- I, you! Yeah. <laughs> and yesterday, as I was making my very first visit to Salem, I started to wonder why people in Boston always said wicked. You know, wicked great, wicked whatever. I was wondering if it had something to do with Salem and the witch trials, if it was just like a local nod to that moment in our history. Uh, the truth is possibly very much weirder if the story is to be believed. Apparently, the whole wicked slang phenomenon was inspired by a Boston mayor's affair with Margaret Hamilton, the actress who played the Wicked Witch of the West. And this is from an article in Boston Magazine written by Matthew Reed Baker. He said, quote, the year zero was 1942 and former mayor James Michael Curley was running for the U.S. House of Representatives. But his campaign was crippled by his torrid affair with Margaret Hamilton, still hot from her role as the Wicked Witch of the West in The Wizard of Oz, which had come out three years earlier in 1939. Once the rascal king dumped his Hollywood mistress, he swept to victory thanks to an endorsement from Cardinal O'Connor who exclaimed, our wicked man has become wicked good. (laughs) And the rest is local slang history. 
Um, the author of this piece does admit that there's an excellent chance that this whole Wicked Witch of the West connection is just local legend. And there's actually, in truth, no consensus when it comes to the slang history of Wicked in New England. Uh, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, the traditional use of Wicked for bad dates back to the 13th century, perhaps as a bastardization of the Middle English word Wicca, or the Old English Wicca, which is kind of a more familiar word to me, which, you know, to me is a synonym for witchcraft. However, there is a theory that Salem City officials started using the word Wicked as a trend to promote tourism in their town. But obviously the use of that phrase went through the roof after Google hunting came out in 1997. I'm surprised we haven't gotten you to bust out a Boston accent on this yet. I can't do them. I, well, cause really? I'm from like just far enough West that uh, it wasn't like a local. My parents are both from Pennsylvania. So mm. I never really grew up surrounded by Boston accents too much. I mean, I heard them, but it wasn't something that was like native to me. Hmm. I bet you had two different accents, huh? Yeah. Growing up. <laughs> you were like two different people. <laughs> yeah. yeah, this this is the point where the podcast just evolves into an, <laughs> us reciting lines from the departed. Let's get this thing back on the rails, folks. That's a much longer podcast. <laughs> we gotta do the departed. I like that's like the movie I think I saw the most in theaters. Oh, it's so perfect. It's yeah. so perfect. Uh, what's my favorite? I mean, my favorite Boston in that is is Marky Mark just doing the. Well, oh, yeah, I maybe, mean. maybe, maybe not. Maybe f you. I mean, the best line in that movie is Leo when he goes to his therapist's house. You don't have cats. I like that. Like that. <laughs> and it's all gold. No, you know what the best line in that movie actually is? Is Alec Baldwin saying, "I'm the guy who does his job. You must be the, must other, be the other guy." guy. <laughs> I no, use that, was that. Marky Mark, right? And that was Mickey Mark. Oh, maybe you're right. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> now that we've talked about a movie we actually care about. <laughs> uh, Kathy Nijibi was reluctant to take this role because she had a fear of real life witches. Rosie O'Donnell, who fears no one, man or <laughs> God or mortal, was originally asked to play the role of Mary Sanderson, but she turned it down because she didn't want to play a witch. So that part ultimately went to Kathy Najimi, who had just broken big in Sister Act, along with Whoopi Goldberg. But apparently, Kathy didn't want to play a witch either. At a 20th anniversary screening panel, she told fans she was afraid of offending real-life witches, which, you know, sure, that's tracks. Uh, she reportedly told the audience, I really believe in white witches, as in witches who are use their magic for good, good. it's yeah. not a whole race thing even though it it, it even though it is boston related <laughs> yeah, the whole witches busing controversy was <laughs> um i really believe in white witches and i'm a witch and a lot of women i know who are very spiritually forward are witches she said she was worried that the Sanderson sisters obsession with killing children would create a negative harmful stereotype around witches which but they, They'll do that, it. That ship's kind of sailed, though, Kathy. Yeah. <laughs> Najimi apparently asked the writers to include mentions of white witches or good witches, such as Allison, the character played by Vanessa Shaw, uh, who she saw as human-ish and funny. Is that is she talking about the actress? <laughs> the idea of <laughs> describing the co-star as human-ish human and funny. Uh, the real reason Najimi agreed to do the movie was because she had been a massive Bette Midler super fan for 15 years, to the point where you said you kept seeing the phrase borderline stalker attached to her name. 
Yes, in listicles, yes. So she was happy to tempt black magic reprisal for a chance to work alongside her hero. Kathy thought of her character Mary as half bloodhound, which is why she has that sort of crooked mouth and barks occasionally. She said, one day in rehearsal, I just sort of went to the side, she explained to Sci-Fi Wire. We decided she was like a bloodhound, so this sort of sniffy thing happened. <laughs> bet there you know, the, wasn't the only sniffy thing that happened on this. hey I actually don't know. Where do these people drug abusers? Charles Rocket was in the cast. <laughs> I don't know. You can't be on Saturday Night Live in the 80s. And... Yeah. Yeah, it's true. But the most seismic instance of alternate universe casting in this movie is that apparently Kenny Ortega wanted Leonardo DiCaprio for the part of Max Dennison. In a 2014 interview with Variety, Leonardo DiCaprio said that he was offered, quote, more money than I ever dreamed of to play Max, but he turned down the role because he was holding out for a chance to audition for What's Eating Gilbert Grape. He said, quote, I don't know where the hell I got the nerve. <laughs> you live in an environment where you're influenced by people telling you you make a lot of money and strike while the iron's hot. But the move paid off because Leo got an Academy Award and Golden Globe nomination for his portrayal of Arnold Arnie Grape, making him the seventh youngest nominee ever in that category at just 19 years old. However, director Kenny Ortega remembers things a little differently. In a 2018 interview with D23, he claims that Leo was never actually available for this movie, but he met with Leo anyway at the assistance of a couple casting agents during pre-production. But even so, everyone already knew that Leo would very likely pass up this role because he was already up for parts in What's Eating Gilbert Grape and This Boy's Life. And sure enough, Ortega said that during the meeting, Leo politely made it clear that his head was, quote, somewhere else. And the part of Max ultimately went to Omri Katz. And after Hocus Pocus, Katz briefly starred in shows like General Hospital and Freaks and Geeks before he retired from acting in 2002. And Katz recently spoke to Entertainment Weekly about the Hocus Pocus sequel. He said, quote, people have been asking, and unfortunately, I'm not in it. I would have loved to have been involved. Aww. Thora Birch, however, was, I guess, offered to reprise her role as Danny Dennison in Hocus Pocus 2, but she declined due to, quote, scheduling conflicts, which... I think is industry code for I don't want to do it. Mm. But maybe I'm wrong. Um, there's a frequent rumor that Hocus Pocus is the first Disney movie to use the word virgin. But that is reportedly untrue. That honor belongs to 1981's Dragon Slayer. And speaking of 1981, <laughs> there's a funny moment in the movie when Max's father snaps at him, watch your language. His dad in this movie is played by the aforementioned Charles Rocket, who is probably most famous for his tenure on SNL when he dropped an unscripted F-bomb live on air during an episode in February 1981. And I believe he was only on the show for one more episode after that before Aww. NBC put the show on hiatus and retooled the cast and kicked him off. Uh, this is just from my memory bank. I think he killed himself by slitting his own throat in a field on his own property in Connecticut in 2005. A, a macabre end of this. Yeah, that's like Faulknerian. Good lord. Yeah. Something I, we didn't have in our Hocus Pocus bingo card. Well, you didn't. Yeah, well. So, James Horner. Uh, enemy of the pod, James Horner? I don't know. We're kind of cool. Oh, yeah, but, oh, but that is not the only Titanic connection in this movie. Yes, and I knew you would find it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the song that Sarah Jessica Parker's character sings in the film, Come Little Children, which she uses to summon the little children, 
was uh, written by James Horner, who wrote My Heart Will Go On, and the score to Titanic, just chock full of penny whistles. <laughs> that soundtrack was just like, that was like our generation's Frampton Comes Alive. Like, yeah. I feel like everyone I knew had that CD. Yeah. Uh, he was nominated for eight Oscars over the course of his career, winning two, both for Titanic, but also earning nods for Apollo 13, Field of Dreams, Braveheart, A Beautiful Mind, and Avatar. And it is hilarious he wound up working with James Cameron again on Titanic and again on Avatar because 10 years earlier, he vowed never to work with Cameron again because the scoring sessions for Aliens were, in Horner's words, a nightmare. Which is, you can probably just plug that into every single interaction with James Cameron anyone has ever had. Not a guy famously well-liked in Hollywood. Uh, <clears throat> Mr. Horner is uh, fame over in his corner eating some pumpkin pie. What? Am I doing that right? Little Georgie something? What am I free associating here, Jordan? Little Jack Horner. Little Jack Horner. Him. Little mm. James Horner sat in his corner self-plagiarizing. <laughs> Um, some pumpkin and pie, uh, and plagiarizing from other people. What I'm getting at here, folks, is that James Horner has been accused of reusing both his previously written works or lightly reworking pieces by classic composers for the material he generates in film. Uh, his scores from Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, and Star Trek III, The Search for Spock include excerpts from, uh, Prokofiev's Alexander Nevsky and Romeo and Juliet. Uh, the action ostinato from Aliens is originally lifted from the werewolf movie Wolfen, starring, I want to say, Albert Finney. And the film's main title is almost identical to Aram Kachikurian's Gayen Ballet Suite, the Adagio, which was already used in an outer space context in 2001, A Space Odyssey. That's just dumb. Don't steal classical music cues from Stanley Kubrick, who did more than perhaps any other filmmaker to popularize classical scores in films in space in space throughout the 20th century. Good Lord. Uh, <laughs> and then he would use it again in the score of Patriot Games. Oh, James Horner, you rube. Field of Dreams includes cues from the Saturday Night Waltz portion of Aaron Copeland's ballet, Rodeo, and Copeland's score from Our Town. In a 1997 issue of Film Score Monthly, an editorial review of Titanic said Horner was skilled in the adaptation of existing music into films with just enough variation to avoid legal troubles. But that is not strictly true. He did indeed get in trouble for his main theme for 1989's Honey, I Shrunk the Kid, which incorporates cues from the score by Nino Rota from Federico Fellini's 1973 film Amarcord. I'm a chord, I think. And Raymond Scott's piece, Powerhouse, regularly heard in the Looney Tunes. God. This led to Raymond Scott's estate to threaten a lawsuit against Disney, who paid an undisclosed settlement out of court. However, history has taken a kinder view of James Horner following his Titanic mega success and his 2015 death in a single occupant plane crash in the Los Padres National Forest. <sighs> R.I.P. James Horner. You're plagiarizing in heaven now. <laughs> Pisses me off. I'm sorry. I don't, I, good lord. I know good artists borrow, great artists steal, but like, come on. Come on. Hmm. And on the topic of reusing music, 
A little known <laughs> fact about Hocus Pocus was that there was a theme song written for it by the Swedish pop duo Roxette, who had number ones in the late 80s with songs like It Must Have Been Love, yeah, that song rules, and Listen to Your Heart, which rules less. Um, they wrote a song called Almost Unreal, which is this great synthy pop banger that references Hocus Pocus a number of times. But ultimately, the producers decided it wasn't right for a family-friendly witch movie and decided to cut it from the film. But since the song was commissioned for Disney, and they obviously own the rights, the company decided to recycle it for another one of their movies, 1993's Super Mario Brothers. Oh! <laughs> yeah, famously misbegotten horrendous box office bomb and the band rock set were apparently pretty pissed about this switch but then again they weren't exactly huge fans of the song in the first place in the booklet for their 2006 release a collection of rock set hits their 20 greatest songs uh one of the bandmates said of this song not one of our most inspired moments so it's probably good that it wound up in a not very inspired film. <laughs> Saying that in your own greatest hits. Yeah. Power, somebody power somebody wasn't in charge of the track listing there. The shoot for Hocus Pocus began on October 12th, 1992. And though the film's obviously set in the town of Salem, most of it was done on a back lot in Burbank, California, which we'll talk more about in a moment. But they did do two weeks of shooting on location in Salem and in the nearby town of Marblehead. That's where they did the scenes for the human Thackeray Binks running through the woods, among many exteriors. The high school in the film, Jacob Bailey High, was actually Phillips Elementary School, which was unused at the time. I think they might have shot inside as well as exteriors. And now that's an apartment complex. So if you're a Hocus Pocus super fan looking for a place to live, check it out. You can live in the school from Hocus Pocus. The Denison's family home is a sweet 1870s Victorian on Ocean Avenue, which has become a popular tourist attraction. And the Halloween party in the film takes place in the supposed Old Town Hall, which is actually the Salem Museum on Derby Square. But most interesting to me is the house belonging to the character Allison. The exterior was shot at the Ropes Mansion on Essex Street in Salem, which is open to the public and operated by the Peabody Essex Museum. Uh, according to the website for it, the house was built in 1727 in Georgian style. But the interiors were shot at a famous mansion in Altadena, California, known as the Crank House, named for its former owner, businessman James F. Crank. And this is cool because the interiors were used not only for Hocus Pocus, but also in the movie Matilda, where it was used for Miss Trunchbull's house, and also mm. Scream 2 during the scene where Cece, who was played by Sarah Michelle Gellar, receives her final fatal phone call. And it was also used in Catch Me If You Can when Leonardo DiCaprio celebrated his engagement to Amy Adams in New Orleans, I think. I think that was when he was in New Orleans in that movie. Never um, seen that. Did you ever Catch Me If You Can? Nope. Oh, it's actually really... I didn't see it ever until relatively recently, like maybe five years ago. And it's it's not one of those ones that you had to see like at a certain time to enjoy it. Like It's, okay. it's really good. Mm -hmm. Um yeah, it's up there with, like, The Sting in terms of just, like, that kind of fun, big Ooh. con movie. Yeah, I mean, okay. obviously The Sting is a lot better, but, yeah. Uh, just as unrelated aside, I'd assume that the cemetery scenes in this movie were shot on location, but apparently they were filmed on the largest soundstage at the Walt Disney Studios, and real birch and elm trees from the East Coast were uprooted and moved to the set to give it that spooky Salem vibe. 
Good lord. Well, as we said, aside from some location shots in Salem, the majority of Hocus Pocus was filmed in California. Exteriors were mostly done at the Warner Brothers Ranch in Burbank, which is basically an open-air movie set museum. The neighborhood where the kids walk in the movie is known as Blondie Street, after the comic strip Blondie, which was then turned into an early television sitcom. This little uh, U-shaped street features house facades that have appeared in I Dream of Jeannie, The Donna Reed Show, The Partridge Family, and, appropriately enough for this episode, Bewitched, as well as more modern stuff like uh, Young Sheldon. (laughs) Son of a bitching Young Sheldon. (laughs) (laughs) Enemy of the pod, Young Sheldon. (laughs) You, in Apocalypse Now, looking through the Venetian blinds, Young Sheldon. Young Sheldon. They also did the Three Stooges, the original Batman and Superman serials, Lethal Weapon, Dennis the Menace, but one house in particular which appears in the background when the kids are prematurely celebrating their defeat of the Sanderson sisters after locking them in the kiln. These kids can be seen talking in front of a house as they walk to the park. Max stops to talk to Binks the cat outside of this house too. This house has a wrought iron fence and blue shutters. This house previously used as the Griswold's house in 1989's National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, but just a few years after Hocus Pocus, was used as the Burnham family home in American Beauty, the house with the red door. And Thor Birch's character lives there in American Beauty. So, six years earlier in Hocus Pocus, Thora Birch is visiting her future movie home. And then, uh, you said you think it's also in WandaVision? Yeah, I think it's... Um... The home in WandaVision? Yeah, I think it's the home in WandaVision, yeah. <laughs> I love this uh, stuff so much. I, I'm good. But, I'm happy you do. <laughs> no, I, I mean, just the way that they reuse the same, like, eight houses for dozens and dozens of movies and TV shows. Like, for example, I mean, the, the, the home in Bewitched, where Samantha and Darren Stevens lived during the whole run of Bewitched, it's the same house that, in A Dream of Genie, Larry Hagman's boss, Dr. Bellows, lives. It's just like... They only have, like, a couple houses. They all just swap out, change the, you know, the aluminum siding on the front, and call it a day. Well, as with all things in Hollywood, it ends tragically. (laughs) Uh, In 2021, Warner Brothers announced a massive plan to overhaul this movie ranch with a $500 million redevelopment plan to build 16 sound stages. This means that this beloved filming location will be no more, and these famous facades will either be destroyed or... God willing, just moved. Um, you said that they're, you think they're they're being kept? The one thing that I think that they're keeping is the park square that is used in the opening of the TV show Friends. Oh, well, thank God. <laughs> and this leads us to <laughs> the next topic. Uh, yes, that set also makes an appearance in Hocus Pocus. Perhaps the most storied set piece in this movie was missed by most viewers for years. It was only recently that internet sleuths took a close look at a park fountain that appeared in the scene where Max, Danny, Allison, and Thackeray Binks are celebrating the demise of the Sanderson sisters. And fans determined that this is the very same fountain from the opening credits of the TV show Friends. Right? You do the clap, yeah. Can you do the yeah, clap wow. thing? Yeah. Uh, the fountain is located at the Warner Brothers studio in Burbank and has appeared in all sorts of TV shows and movies dating back to the 60s. It was used in Friends because it looks very similar to the Cherry Hill Fountain in Central Park. The fountain was moved from the Warner Brothers ranch to the main studio lot earlier this year to preserve it, 
where it was added to the Warner Brothers studio tour in Hollywood, which means you can see it and pose for photos with it. And there are still many more traces of classic movies and shows in Hocus Pocus. This was a film that had originally been conceived as a made-for-TV movie, so the budget was fairly tight. And one place where they cut corners was the costume budget, specifically for the scene where they filmed the town's Halloween party. And for the costumes worn by the townspeople, the producers just dipped into the Disney costume vault and pulled out old outfits that had been worn in prior films. And this was a godsend because, as customer Mary Vaught told Glamour in 2019... They had literally run out of money when it came to shooting this scene. And she said, fortunately, I had access to the Walt Disney costume department and they'd saved clothes from all the movies they'd done. So I went through there and took everything that looked like a costume. In some movie, they must have had these three girls in red sequin dresses. So I said, let's get that. We'll ask three women to play the Supremes. And if you look closely, you'll see that there are outfits in the background that were used in Tron the old Treasure Island with Robert Newton, The Sword and the Rose, which I don't know that one, and even costumes from Bette Midler's Emmy-nominated TV version of the stage musical Gypsy, which is the biopic of burlesque dancer Gypsy Rose Lee. And there's a little nod to it in Hocus Pocus when Winifred, played by Bette Midler, takes the stage to perform. She says, Hello, Salem! My name's Winifred! What's yours? And that's a very famous line in Gypsy when Bette Midler's character goes on stage. She says, Hello, everybody! My name's Rose! What's yours? I only saw the, um, the Natalie Wood version of Gypsy, but I think she does it in the middle of uh, Let Me Entertain You. You, your mom's a musical person. You know any of the Gypsy stuff? Nope. Any, any tunes from Gypsy? Bette okay. Midler is a huge blind spot for me. Really? I don't mm. know. I don't know any of the... I don't know Gypsy. I don't know Beaches. I don't know any of that shit. Really? Oh, Beaches? Oh, yeah. man. Oh, that's a bummer. Sad one. Yeah. Anyway... Apparently, back in the day, you used to be able to actually rent the witches' costumes from Hocus Pocus. The studio would just rent out their costumes from their costume vault. Um, awesome. Uh, at least that's what Costume Mary Vaught says in this glamour piece. Now, she says, studios keep everything. They have their archives and keep absolutely everything. But at that time, it was different. I think the real Hocus Pocus costumes, people would just rent them out all the time so they could get money out of them. But then when the movie got more popular, that stopped. I've seen photos of the real costumes, and they actually look like they're in pretty good shape, even though they were rented out for years. That's cool. Hmm. <laughs> it's like how in, um, I forget which studio, but sometime in the 70s, I think it was MGM, they just, uh, I think MGM was like either looking to downsize its actual facility and not store all of their movie props and stuff, or they just wanted to make some money and wanted to sell some stuff off and get some cash. Uh, I want to say it was in 1970, they were selling Dorothy's Ruby Slippers and just all this, I think, stuff Ooh. from Gone with the Wind and all this stuff. It's like a, you know, like when hotels go out of business, like that kind of thing, where they just would let people in. Yeah, I mean, it, there's like a... Really, look it up. I think there's a whole Wikipedia page about, like, the 1970 MGM sale. <laughs> and they sold, you know, up to that point, what? It's 1970, so say 50 years of the most amazing historic movie memorabilia ever. This is the biggest It Belongs in a Museum segment <laughs> we've ever had on this show. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. We're going to take a quick break, but we'll be right back with more Too Much Information in just a moment. You deserve a moment to yourself every single day. And a delicious bite of a Keebler Sandies can give you that comforting pause. 
Celebrate the end of your workday with the melt-in-your-mouth magic of a Keebler Sandies. This magic is baked into simple shortbread cookies by Ernie and the Keebler Elves. So as another busy Monday flies by, make the most of your me moment. Take a pause and enjoy a Keebler Sandies. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. Nobody wants to outlive their money, but it happens, especially for women. That's why Gainbridge offers the Parity Flex annuity. It's designed for women's unique retirement needs with flexible withdrawals to help cover unexpected expenses, plus a guaranteed lifetime income benefit that keeps paying you even if your account balance is zero. In other words, it's like getting a paycheck for life. We'll say that again. A paycheck for life. Guaranteed. Sounds too good to be true? It's not. It's the Parity Flex annuity. And it's one more example of their commitment to creating a better financial future for women. One where they feel empowered, not excluded, and ready to take on whatever their next chapter holds. Gainbridge believes financial flexibility and security are things we all could use more of. At Retirement Income You Can't Outlive is the ultimate flex. Who's with us? Start saving now at Gainbridge.io. Please visit Gainbridge.io slash ParityFlex for current rates, full product disclosures and disclaimers, and other important information. So while you can't actually wear the same outfits worn by the Sanderson sisters in Hocus Pocus, you can stay in their house. Sort of. Fine print. Asterix. Uh, you know consult local dealer for details their cottage has recently been recreated in the town of Danvers Massachusetts about 15 minutes away from Salem as part of the celebration for the Hocus Pocus sequel this year and Airbnb ran a competition where two guests could stay there for just one night for only $31 all of this I don't really understand how all this works economically I'm guessing it was all just a promo for the film and I think the cottage is independently owned and operated Um, The big catch is that there's not much in the way of accommodations. There's an outhouse in place of a bathroom. There's no kitchen. There's no TV. There's no air conditioning. But the lucky guests who did manage to make a reservation for this, I think, one night only event, uh, will see some, uh, well, I guess this already happened, were able to see some of the more memorable details from the film, including the spell book, the famous cauldron, a few brooms for flying, and a black cat who looks quite a bit like Thackeray Binks. And now we must come to Thackeray Binks. This movie was made when CGI was still in its infancy, so this was a difficult effect to pull off, the talking cat. It was created with a mix of practical effects and very rough-and-ready computer effects. It involved nine, yes, nine, and not for a bit, black cats plus an animatronic robot cat. The nine cats were basically the filmmaker's way of hedging their bets. Because, you see, if you teach one cat every single trick that you might use in a movie, you're screwed if the cat is having a bad day and refuses to cooperate, which, as anyone will tell you, is frequently. So, instead, animal handlers will train multiple cats to do different tasks and tricks. 
Vanessa Shaw, who played Allison Watts, later said, There was a whole wall of cats. They all did a different thing. One would bat you, one would jump on you, one would sleep, one would cuddle with you. The fact that there were nine cats was purely a coincidence and not a reference to the old cats having nine lives. Wives' Tale. For scenes where Binks speaks, filmmakers either used a real cat and then replaced its head with a primitive CGI version, or they would use one of six animatronic cats to get the job done. At least one of these animatronics... Uh, found Second Life uh, (laughs) on the production of Sabrina the Teenage Witch, starring Melissa Joan Hart, between 1996 and 2003 for the part of the wisecracking feline Salem. The kids were annoyed with all of the cats because each time a new one was brought onto the set, they'd have to become friendly with it, which if you spend any time around (laughs) cats at all, you know is a herculean task because cats are the devil they would have to earn these the new cats trust using a combination of treats and a buzzer and it was a whole thing i feel like we say this in every episode as wc fields once said never work with children or animals (laughs) continuing down thackeray binks lane uh (laughs) in the lore of the movie he's actually a 17th century man who was turned into a cat as punishment for insulting winifred sanderson the human form of the character is played by actor Sean Murray, who later went on to star in the crime procedural NCIS, but they didn't use Murray's actual voice. After he'd filmed his part, producers decided that his voice sounded too modern to convincingly be coming from a 17th century boy. So they called in an 18-year-old actor and vocal performer named Jason Marsden, who is something of an undercover MVP when it comes to beloved 90s children properties. No. In fact, he sort of just he's on he's all over the TGIF lineup. He plays uh, Eric Matthews, best friend in Boy Meets World, that's the older brother of Corey. Uh, he plays DJ's rich boyfriend on Full House, the one who hires Frankie Valley to sing for her, and JT's friend on Step by Step. He also voiced Goofy's son Max in a Goofy movie. That's a hell of a lineup right there. I just want to pause and reflect on that. He had a good couple of years. <laughs> he had a good run. A good spring. <laughs> <laughs> When I was 17. Uh, Marston actually hung out on the set while it was filming because he was working on a television show that was shooting nearby. He was not cast as the voice of Binks until after the film had wrapped, and that's when they called him in to do two or three days of dialogue dubbing. Uh, He told the Daily Beast in 2017 they thought it would be more realistic, since the witches come from a different time period, for Binks to have an affected accent. Unfortunately, since they had shot the thing already, Marsden had to lip sync over the previous guy's performance, both for the live action stuff, as well as for the stuff they animated for the cat. As you can imagine, this was something of a chore. Marsden recalled the animator in charge of Binks was meticulous. (laughs) Wonderful euphemism there. He said, I'll never forget. There were times when I'm like, oh, I landed this. He's like, no, you were off half a frame. He was so nitpicky about it, in the best way. The frustrating part was like, I wish, this is nothing against Sean, I mean, this is the way it was, but I wish I would have been able to use my own rhythms because I had to actually match what was already there. So that's enough about cats. Now we have to give equal time to dogs. There's a scene in the movie where the Sanderson sisters meet a man dressed up as the devil for Halloween, and hilariously, they believe him to be the real devil and are pumped at the opportunity to meet the master. They go to a suburban home only to be chased out by his dog with red bat wings. Satan wings? I don't really know what he's supposed to be dressed as. Anyway, that dog is Kathy and Jimmy's real-life dog, who is named Al Finney. Big Albert Finney fan? I don't I don't know. <laughs> um, the dog also made a cameo in Sister Act as well. 
And the so-called devil and his wife in this movie are probably familiar to pop culture buffs. It's Gary Marshall, who was famous for the, as the TV executive who created Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley, and Mark and Mindy, before branching out into directing stuff like Pretty Woman, Runaway Bride, The Princess Diaries, Overboard with Goldie Hawn and Kurt Russell, and the tearjerker Beaches with Bette Midler, which is probably how he wound up in here. Uh, he also did small acting parts, including the baseball team owner in A League of Their Own, uh, which was directed by his sister, Penny Marshall, who plays his wife in this movie. Hmm. Uh, she famously played Laverne and Laverne and Shirley and um, produced the movie version of Bewitched in 2005. So, I don't know, a nice little bit of synergy there. But, uh, yeah, she's married to her brother in uh, Hocus Pocus, which hmm. is weird. Um, hmm. I remember when I was in high school and I was we did Grease for Drama Society and the director cast one of my friends to play one of the T-Birds and he accidentally, so he says, cast this guy's sister to play his corresponding pink lady. Because, you know, all the T-Birds have names like Duffy, Duty, Sonny, all like no one knows like who they are. And then all of a sudden on the first day when everybody showed up, he realized that his sister was playing his love interest and... They swapped parts pretty quickly. That tracks. Yeah. <laughs> well, incest is gross, but you know what else is gross? Moths flying out of your mouth. <laughs> Segway. There's a scene in the movie where the character Billy Butcherson has moths fly out of his mouth. Seeing how this is before the age of CGI, they had to figure out a way to do this with practical effects, which meant that he had moths in his mouth. <laughs> the character of Billy Butcherson is played by the famous character actor Doug Jones, who is, uh, by virtue of being tall and skinny in almost every monster suit you can imagine, <laughs> um, he, especially in stuff directed by Guillermo del Toro, yeah. uh, he is the pale man, the guy with the, who puts his hands in his eyes in, oh. uh, in, in um, the most horrifying sequence in Pan's Labyrinth. He's the fish-like Abe Sapien in Hellboy and its sequel, and uh, basically reprises the character in a completely different film, Shape of Water, a Best Picture winner, mm. The Shape of Water. Uh, he's the Silver Surfer in Fantastic Four movie. He's one of the creepy gentlemen in Buffy. He's an alien in Falling Skies. Uh, his working relationship with Guillermo del Toro dates back to Mimic. You ever hear about this movie? No. The the movie where they create humanoid cockroaches. Yeah, it's gross. Doug Whoa. Jones plays one of them. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, um, but Hocus Pocus is one of his first major roles, and he actually tweaked his dialogue a little bit when Billy is reanimated and calls Winifred a wench. The line was initially supposed to be bitch, but Doug Jones thought that was a little much for a Disney movie and made the edit. He seems like a lovely kind of man, and in no way do we wish that he had moths shoved in his mouth. But such was his lot. You can't fight City Hall. <laughs> you can't fight moths. Uh, in a 2018 interview with Bloody Disgusting, makeup and special effects designer Tony Gardner said that Jones wore a mouth rig, <laughs> phrasing, which can be best be described as a latex pocket attached to dentures that blocked off Jones' throat, basically a dental dam. Uh, this was so that he wouldn't swallow them, the moths, and that they wouldn't get so wet that they couldn't then fly out. God, that's gross. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Anyway, at the appointed time, a trainer would place the moths in the dental dam pocket with a pair of tweezers under supervision from a Humane Society rep. Unfortunately, it took them several takes to nail that shot, 
which meant poor Doug Jones just had a whole afternoon of moth mouth. <laughs> Sorry, Allie, we're going to get the Mothman prophecies for you soon, but will you settle for... <laughs> Stay tuned for my, my full-length My Dinner with Andre parody. That's just My Dinner with Moth Mouth. <laughs> Well, as you can gather, considering the fact that they made this man actually have moths in his mouth, practical effects were very much the name of the game during the production of Hocus Pocus. They really wanted everything to be done for real, and this was down to the jack-o'-lanterns used in the movie. Which, as you can imagine, jack-o'-lanterns, pumpkins that have been carved out, sitting under hot lights for days, maybe even weeks at a time, started to smell. And I guess after not very long, the set started to smell disgusting. Hocus Pocus set decorator Rosemary Brandenburg later said, We vowed we wouldn't use any store-bought Halloween decorations, so we made everything from scratch. From carved pumpkins to scarecrows, witches, ghosts, you name it. It was a blast. There was a layered quality to Hocus Pocus that I continue to strive for in my work. But she also added that her most visceral memory of the sets was the overwhelming smell of rotting pumpkins. Sarah Jessica Parker's main memory from the production was a little less disgusting. In fact, it's kind of whimsical. In an interview with Stephen Colbert in 2018, she admitted that she doesn't have very many memories of filming Hocus Pocus, but she loved flying during the broom sequences. In fact, she loved it so much that she would hang out in the flying rig in between breaks on the set. Uh, Once again, this was just a master class in practical effects. There was a giant grid mounted to the ceiling of the soundstage that was capable of flying the Sanderson sisters anywhere on the stage that they wanted at any angle. And these actors would be suspended something like 30 feet off the ground, which sounds terrifying to me, but Sarah Jessica Parker loved it. As she told Colbert, they'd call cut and maybe they'd go to lunch or change the lens, and I would just stay up there. I realized I could fit an entire New York Times up the back of the corset. And I found that the harness was comfortable, so I would just sit up there and read the times while people took their breaks or changed the camera or sometimes went to lunch. Honestly, this kind of sounds like exactly what I would imagine Sarah Jessica Parker (laughs) would have done on the set of Hocus Pocus. I mean, it's perfect training for Sex in the City. Uh, Another of my favorite practical effects from Hocus Pocus is when they turn Bette Midler's character to stone at the end of the movie. Spoilers! Uh, (laughs) CGI was still in its infancy again, and painting her like a living statue would have looked like something you would see in... Washington Square Park, kind of corny. So instead, the production team went with seven different statues, which showed the progression of the flesh and blood Winifred Sanderson or whatever witches are. Are they flesh and blood? I guess they are. Uh, Turning to stone. So these statues were all swapped out as the scene progressed. Um, And in our It Belongs in Museum segment for this episode, one of these statues currently resides in the Planet Hollywood in Orlando, Florida, along with the fleshy spellbook. Production was, well, not this part isn't sad. This part was probably quite happy. Production was completed on February 10th, 1993, which meant no more moths in a young Doug Jones's mouth. <laughs> <laughs> I just can't. Oh, moth, moth, I, it's so moth mouth. Um, but Disney fumbled so close to the end zone. Rather than release the movie during Halloween, because it's a Halloween movie, they opted to release it wide midsummer. Famously the most Halloween-y of times, July 16th, 1993. The idea was that they would take advantage of all the kids out on summer vacation and avoid competition with other Halloween-centric releases, specifically Disney's own Nightmare Before Christmas, which is not a bad idea, Hmm. except for the fact that summer of 1993 also featured some movies you may have heard of, like Rookie of the Year, 
Free Willy, Dennis the Menace, a reissue of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, and a small independent movie that would <laughs> go on to have no impact on the wider film industry at large. Jordan, have you heard of this one? Jurassic Jura- Jurassic Park? Am I saying that right? <laughs> Those idiots debuted their little witch movie against Jurassic Park instead of putting it out in October. Spielberg's Jurassic Park. Still yes, smart. That's... He probably scheduled it against it on purpose. Sorry, it's crushed them like the moth under my... <laughs> <laughs> like a moth in Doug Jones' molars. <laughs> The film debuted in fourth place, which honestly, pretty good, yeah. pretty respectable, considering everything we just rattled off, earned a reported 39.5 mil in its initial theatrical run against a 28 million budget. So made its money back, but eh. Um, there are some involved with this movie, though, got the distinct impression that Disney was just trying to bury it. Um, aside from a set visit from Entertainment Tonight and the three stars appearing individually on the Today Show the week of its release... There were almost no contemporary interviews out there and very little promo for the film at at the time. As Jason Marsden, the voice of Thackeray Binks and no stranger to the Disney machine at the time, later said, it wasn't built up as this landmark thing that Disney was going to launch. He joked that if there was a press tour for the movie, they didn't invite me. David Kirshner had similar sentiments, saying, I never got the impression that Disney were gung-ho. They put the trailer out there and that's about all they did for it. The movie was also torn apart, much like a moth in Doug Jones's mouth. <laughs> Hocus Pocus was torn apart by critics. Gene Siskel called it a dreadful witch's comedy with nothing funny to say. Roger Ebert gave it a mere one star, writing, Of the film's many problems, the greatest may be that all three witches are thoroughly unpleasant. They don't have personalities. They have behavior patterns and decibel levels. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. A good movie inspires the audience to subconsciously ask, Give me more. The witches in this one inspired my silent cry, Get me out of here. Eh, that's not as good. Hocus Pocus is a film desperately in need of self-discipline. It's one of those projects where you imagine everyone laughing and applauding each other after every scene because they're so convinced they're wild and crazy guys. But watching the movie is like attending a party you weren't invited to and where you don't know anybody and they're all in on a joke but won't explain it to you. Ebert. Not one to pull punches. Entertainment Weekly was no kinder, calling it a piece of corny slapstick trash and saying it was acceptably scary, silly kid fodder that adults will find only mildly insulting, (laughs) unless they're Bette Midler fans, in which case it's depressing as hell. (laughs) To this day, the film holds a 38% critical score on Rotten Tomatoes. So all in all, a bit of a sad trombone. Thora Birch told the rap, After that initial disappointment wore off, there was just a period of dead silence about the film. Like, nobody talked about it. Nobody watched it. Felt like that lasted for about 10 years. And then the cast gradually noticed this groundswell around the movie. They said that the cult status of the movie sort of dawned on them all at different times, but the average was around 2007, 2008. So what happened? Well, first of all, it became a constant feature on both the Disney Channel and the Disney-owned ABC Family Channel for years, anchoring the multi-week block of festive Halloween programming. And, of course, it was also a huge hit on home video. Hocus Pocus was first released in 2002, but sales really started speeding up in 2008. So, yeah, that's around, you know, that, that, that jibes with when the cast started noticing that they were being asked about it more at fan events and stuff. And every October since 2011, the movie has made more than $1 million in DVD sales a year. 
And that figure is sure to rise this year with the release of the Hocus Pocus sequel in September. Uh, director Kenny Ortega spoke about the film's slow burn in a 2020 interview with Forbes. Talking about the initial flop, he said, Honestly, at that point, I thought it was all over for me. I thought to myself, I'm never going to get a chance to do this ever again. My career as a filmmaker is all over. Then, over the years, everything changes. What I've learned is, don't give up. I believed in Hocus Pocus. The girls believed in it. And even though it wasn't found by audiences immediately, the generations have believed in it. And, you know, for a movie that neither Heigl nor myself have ever seen or especially care to, I think that that's a beautiful sentiment to end on. Bette Midler has talked about the film's late blooming success during a Reddit AMA in 2015. Uh, um, that's amazing. Uh, she said, I am shocked. I'm totally shocked. All of us are just stunned by the success of the movie. Kathy, Sarah, Jessica, and I have talked about it. We are totally thrilled to death. Because when it came out, it laid a tiny little bit of an egg, she said. So we didn't <laughs> expect much. And now look at it. October is Hocus Pocus month. And she also well. told... Well, okay. Yeah, let's, give, let's, give her, let's give her that. <laughs> yeah, okay. She also told the BBC that it's her favorite among all of the films that she's made. Though she doesn't rewatch it much. Kathy Najibi, on the other hand, has made an annual tradition of rewatching Hocus Pocus with her family every year on August 15th, apparently. I don't know why that's the case, because it wasn't when it was released and it's not Halloween. Maybe it's in between when it was released in Halloween. I don't know. Hmm. It's the waypoint between when it was released and Halloween. But, you know, honestly, if it makes Kathy and Jimmy happy, I think this was all worth it. The movie and this the podcast. episode. Yeah. All of it. All of it. Folks, thank you for listening. This has been Too Much Information. I'm Alex Heigl. And I'm Jordan Runtog. We'll catch you next time. Too Much Information was a production of iHeartRadio. The show's executive producers are Noel Brown and Jordan Runtog. The supervising producer is Mike Johns. The show was researched, written, and hosted by Jordan Runtog and Alex Heigl. With original music by Seth Applebaum and the Ghost Funk Orchestra. If you like what you heard, please subscribe and leave us a review. For more podcasts on iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases and pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. I'm so excited to tell you JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for The Everyday Guy. What I love about Walker Hayes is his laid-back nature. He's a family man and being a country megastar while also having seven kids. You know he likes to keep his style cool and casual. This new collection is perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear, affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, 
Make it count. Are you spending more time in your basement now that it's your rec room, office, kids' playroom, or home gym? Well, you need to ventilate those spaces to remove stagnant, musty air. For over 20 years, the Easy Breathe ventilation system exchanges dirty, damp air for cleaner, drier, healthier air. Take charge of your indoor air with your own Easy Breathe ventilation system. You can get it installed, or DIY kits are available. Just call 866-822-7328 or visit TakeChargeOfYourAir.com and receive 20% off today.